The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. What would you prefer? You know, would you prefer that this boy, you know, Vasya, die because he couldn't get dialysis? Would you prefer that this girl, Katya, die from her shrapnel wounds that she suffered during the war that was obviously not her fault, right? Like, would it be better if I held my nose and uh, refused to engage in these compromises so these kids died? You know, would you be sort of happier so you could write about, you know, how awful the bloody Putin regime is? Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the democracy paradox. Joshua Yef is the type of journalist who bridges the divide between the academic study of Russia and its portrayal in the media. He has written for The Economist and now writes for The New Yorker. I reached out to Joshua to discuss his recent book, Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition, and Compromise in Putin's Russia. Joshua's book is unlike most of the literature on Russia available today. It takes a nuanced look at Russian society through portraits of real-life people who have found it necessary to make compromises to pursue their careers. But what surprised me most about the book was how the characters came across as relatable despite their obvious differences and their distinct stories. So this is a conversation about Russia, but I found that it was also about universal experiences that we all share. Now, before we begin, I want to thank any first-time listeners. Please consider subscribing to the podcast if you haven't already, and check out the website, democracyparadox.com. As always, you can reach me at jkempf at democracyparadox.com. But for now, this is my conversation with Joshua Yaffa. Joshua Yaffa, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Happy to be here. Well, Joshua, your book was unlike any that I've come across on Russia. It offered portraits of extraordinary people, but ones who became very relatable as you told their stories. For me, the most compelling story was really about Dr. Lisa. Can you briefly tell her story and how it fits some of those larger themes from the book on? ambition and compromise. Sure. Thanks for the very generous introductory words about the book. That's very nice to hear. Dr. Lisa, indeed, is one of the characters who resonated with me the most. Elizabeth Glinka is her full name, and she came to prominence in Russia in the 2000s for her work, first with the terminally ill in launching one of the first hospice care facilities in Russia, before from the Soviet times into post-Soviet Russia. Those with terminal illnesses were essentially written off by the healthcare system and in a way, even perhaps you could say by society, or they at least sent back, say, to their relatives to die 
alone without much real care or empathy, at least in any kind of organizational or institutional way. And so Dr. Lisa was one of the first people to bring hospice care to Russia. She was inspired by her own time in the U.S. She lived in the United States in Vermont for a while with her Russian-American husband, Gleb, who was a lawyer. And in Vermont, she was exposed to the idea of hospice care and care for the terminally ill. And she took that experience with her upon her return to Russia. And from her time working with the terminally ill, she began working or administering to the homeless, feeding the homeless and providing medical care to them at what became a rather famous or popular weekly mission to Pavelyetsky Vogzal, one of the main train stations in, in Moscow. And for both of those activities, she became a renowned figure, a respected figure for doing what hadn't really existed in Russia before, tending to and administering to the needs of communities that were really out of sight, out of mind, especially in the mid-2000s oil boom go-go years of Moscow, when Moscow was its most kind of flush and exuberant and didn't have much kind of time or energy to think about those left behind. But Dr. Lisa did. And that made her, as I said, a popular figure, a revered figure, even a saintly figure, people began to say. And from there, this sort of brought her into the attention of the state, who was attracted by her popularity, attracted by her moral authority. And she was invited to join the Kremlin Human Rights Council, a state body that exists inside the presidential administration that episodically throughout its history can actually achieve maybe some kind of targeted, self-contained good. It can kind of soften the fangs of the regime. It, it can't quite remove them. But nonetheless, Lisa was always guided by this idea that if she could do some real good for concrete people, she was obligated to try and do so and obligated to take on whatever compromises might be required. And that really reached its apex with the onset of the war in Donbass in eastern Ukraine in 2014, when Russian-backed kind of would-be faux separatists uh, mounted an insurgency, which quickly was revealed to be essentially a Russia-backed kind of proxy campaign in eastern Ukraine, but nonetheless did have very real victims, very real innocent victims of that war. Children, for example, people who were already injured, had sort of long-term illnesses, dialysis, things like that, that needed constant medical attention that obviously became difficult or impossible when Donbass turned into the center of a, a war zone. And Dr. Lisa felt compelled to help those people, especially children either injured in the war or those with long-term illnesses. And she did so by entering into a kind of, not exactly a pact, I don't think it was ever spoken about overtly, but nonetheless, a implicit pact with the Kremlin through this Presidential Human Rights Council by which she gained access to all sorts of state resources to evacuate sick and injured children from the Donbass war zone, to bring them into Russia, to get them places at Russian state hospitals, to have them undergo otherwise quite costly surgeries and other medical procedures. But in doing so, her part of the bargain, as it were, was to lend her credibility, to lend her face to a Kremlin PR campaign that was intent not only on denying Russian culpability for the war, but to actually perversely present Russia and Putin specifically as a humanitarian actor. You know, look at Russia, we're uh, helping to get victims of this awful war out of the war zone. As someone said to me, someone who was close to Dr. Lisa at the time, Lisa gave not just Putin, but other officials in the Kremlin a kind of indulgence, right? In the old papal sense or, or kind of Roman Catholic sense, right? A, a chance for those who were very much responsible, you could say, for the continuation of the war in Donbass, a chance to kind of buy their way out from their sins by helping Lisa evacuate these children and getting them into hospitals. And so it was a real moral 
dilemma and a compromise of a very concentrated form. And as you say, compromise is what I was interested in, in writing my book. And, and I think you're right in pointing out that Lisa lived a very dramatic and acute uh, version of that dilemma. There was a story in the book that really caught my attention of the type of compromise that we're talking about, where she was in this almost hot zone where it was incredibly dangerous in the Donbass region, where her life and the life of the people she was working with were in immediate danger. And the way that she was able to get out of the situation was to be able to call on a Russian military helicopter to come and evacuate them. And the person that she was working alongside felt very uneasy about the fact that it was a Russian military helicopter. I just felt like it showed how close to the proximity of power she was within all of this. It wasn't just a implicit connection. I mean, it was a very direct connection with the state that she had. Well, when she wanted to gain additional resources, more planes, more places, whether buses or trains to get people from the war zone into kind of Russia proper, places and hospitals, she wasn't shy at all about going to her really high-placed Kremlin interlocutors and asking them directly. And, And I think, as far as I can tell from talking with people close to Lisa at that time, consciously understanding without fully admitting to herself. That's the other interesting part, right? Consciously understanding the game she was playing without ever kind of overtly to herself admitting the transactional nature of this compromise. But I do think she understood that the state gained something from its proximity to her halo, as it were. And in exchange, Lisa was able to get the kinds of resources like a medical evacuation plane in a war zone that really only one kind of institution or or one actor was able to provide, the Russian state. And I certainly understand those who found this arrangement questionable to the point of distasteful. That's not a kind of mysterious or or strange response. I, I understand it very well that there's something indeed untoward or maybe even something stronger than that, right? Uh, really morally reprehensible, some would say, in going to the very people who were responsible for this war, at least bear a good deal of responsibility for it, maybe not 100%, but certainly their fair share. And then asking them sort of on the margins, can you help this poor child? Can you get this kid an operation? That something was lost in that trade, right? That Lisa wasn't coming out ahead in that exchange. But I also at the same time understand her response, which was, what would you prefer? You know, would you prefer that this boy, you know, Vasya die because he couldn't get dialysis? Would you prefer that this girl, Katya, die from her shrapnel wounds that she suffered during the war that was obviously not her fault, right? Like, would it be better if I held my nose and uh, refused to engage in these compromises so these kids died? You know, would you be sort of happier so you could write about, you know, how awful the bloody Putin regime is? You know, I think there was something a little too... uh On the one hand, Lisa maybe was letting herself off a bit too easily. But on the other hand, I think her critics were also, in a way, letting themselves off too easily from the the real moral conundrum that Lisa was standing before when, when real concrete lives were in the balance. For Lisa, this wasn't a theoretical question. It was a very practical question, right? Lisa, I don't think, thought in theoretical terms, or as her husband, Gleb, said to me, she didn't think in political terms, right? She didn't think in terms of kind of political structures that was all amorphous to her, I think genuinely amorphous to her. What she saw was someone in need and thought, how can I help that person? Well, what's fascinating about her case, her story, is that it's impossible to question her motives. Her motives were undoubtedly pure, but at the same time, because of the means that she went about 
accomplishing those results. She's not completely innocent. But at the same time, she wouldn't have accomplished these almost saintly accomplishments, delivered these results, unless if she would allow herself to become somewhat muddied in the Russian state, you know, allowed her innocence to escape herself. It's it's a fascinating story for that reason. Right. What Lisa's position was, was that it was a kind of privilege, if you will, for those who held their noses at what the Putin uh, regime was doing uh, in Ukraine. That's all correct, she would say, or, or that let's assume that's all correct, she would say, right? She very conspicuously didn't take a position in the war, which is something else that her critics very much seized upon, right? There is a point perhaps in a conflict, right? Which is war is politics by other means. So if that's the case, right, then then to kind of deny the political in war is almost a kind of political act. You're sort of inherently taking one side or the other. But that's all way too much of an abstraction for Lisa, right? As she saw it and, and told others that to kind of think in purely abstract political terms is a kind of privilege that she didn't have as someone who was interested and motivated in the saving of individual lives. And so, yeah, she, this is me talking, not her, but had to get her hands dirty, right? She had to kind of get in the mix and find solutions and finding solutions isn't as uh, clean as uh, standing off on the sidelines and moralizing. We should say how Lisa's story ends, which is that in 2016, she boarded a military transport aircraft flying from an airbase in southern Russia to Syria. She was accompanying a Russian defense ministry, so-called humanitarian mission to Syria. She was going to bring medicines and meet with Syrian doctors, ask what supplies they needed. Very much, this was an example of the state borrowing her image as a humanitarian to put that kind of spin on the Russian military campaign in Syria. After the war in Ukraine, Russia first through an air war, but later ground troops entered Syria on the side of Bashar al-Assad and wanted to put a humanitarian spin on that intervention. And what better way to do that than have Dr. Lisa go and hand out medicines and the like. And she felt compelled to go. That was a case where people close to her said she didn't necessarily want to go. That already felt like a kind of extension of her mission in a way that she knew was a stretch. But she felt like these are the people who give her so much in terms of opportunities to save lives and provide necessary care to people in Donbass. So it's a case where she had a hard time saying no. That military aircraft tragically crashed shortly after takeoff from Sochi into the Black Sea, killing everyone on board, including Dr. Lisa. And so we can say in a very deeply tragic and really horrific way, you know, her proximity to the state in an elementary sense was the thing that put her on that plane, right? She wouldn't have been on that military aircraft if she hadn't gotten in so deep in terms of her relationship with uh, Russian officials and the Russian state. Of course, the fact that it horrifically dropped out of the sky is uh, a terrible random act of, of, of fate that sort of nobody or, or nothing was in control of. But nonetheless, her presence on that plane uh, was a result of this deepening and increasingly complicated relationship she found herself in with the Russian state. Now, Dr. Lisa is just one of many characters that you discuss in your book who make compromises to be able to pursue their goals and their dreams. And as I said before, these are extraordinary characters, but at the same time, their experiences feel very relatable as you read about them. What do we share in common with their experiences? I think everything, in the sense that the underlying dynamic of wanting to achieve something, starting out with 
understandable, even virtuous goals, and along the way, encountering not even necessarily roadblocks, but just the complications of life and other actors. It doesn't have to be the state. It could be, you know, your bosses at work. It could be the Twitter mob. I mean, it doesn't matter. Whatever countervailing forces you come across along the way to be a you know, functioning adult in the world is to understand how to navigate those complications and, and to make compromises where you need to. You'd actually be something of a sociopath if you pursued only your goals and ambitions in some narrow, strict way and were unwilling to modify them whatsoever to take on the kind of considerations or others or the sort of objective circumstances in which you found yourself. So I think there's something just human and universal and normal in the fact that to be alive or to at least want to achieve something in this life and to have some ambition and energy and idea of what you'd like to accomplish for yourself in society, well, that means having to take into account all range of, of factors that may modify in some way those initial goals, or you have to take into consideration new realities, new contexts, and, and have to think about where am I willing to compromise? Where am I willing to soften or modify or change those goals? Where am I not? What's the point where I actually will say, no, you know, that's a matter of principle for me. I won't bend on that. But in other cases, to be able to bend, I mean, that's a really universal set of circumstances that maybe is felt more acutely in some ways in Russia, because I do think in Russia, the role of the state is much larger. So the, the fact that the state occupies this kind of unifying or universal role where kind of no matter where you turn, you come up across the state and the state's interests. And the state also has rather unified interests. In other words, the centralization of power under Putin over the last 20 years, and really perhaps we can talk about kind of historically in Russia's political culture, means that there's a great deal of unanimity or kind of uniformity in what the state asks of you on the local level and what it asks of you on the national level, right? I mean, the, the pressures against a school teacher or theater director in Vladivostok may resemble very much those in Moscow because the state under Putin has really begun to march to one beat, at least when it comes to its sort of large strategic mission and questions of ideology and, and, and so on. So given the state presence in so many fields, whether it's humanitarian work, like in the case of Dr. Liza, theater, like in the case of Kirill Serebnikov, theater director, the Russian Orthodox Church, which has also become very much intertwined with the Russian state, the state just penetrates a lot of aspects of life that the state doesn't necessarily intrude in the same way in a place like the United States. But in the United States, maybe, you know, corporate pressures intrude just as much or, or social pressure. So I don't want to say they don't exist. But indeed, I do think that to the extent there is a unique factor about this dilemma of compromise in Russia, is that once you reach a certain level of, kind of success or ambition, you're going to encounter the state and have to face the decision of, okay, what am I willing to do or, or compromise on vis-a-vis -vis the state? And, and what am I not? So is the relationship with the state, is that really what makes this a Russian story? Is this what sets it completely apart from the experiences that we might have in the United States and Europe? Let me put it like this. I think in why I chose this prism for writing my book, I didn't choose this prism because I thought this story of compromise was somehow exclusively Russian. It's not. It's a universal kind of dilemma. It's a universal set of circumstances. In other words, it's not that this prism is exclusive to Russia. I just thought this particular tool could be fruitful for explaining Russia. There's lots of ways into the Russia story, lots of ways I could have chosen to frame the book. I thought this particular frame, although it's not exclusive to Russia, offers some particular illustrative insight into Russia by choosing this kind of avenue of storytelling. At the same time, though, the personalities that you describe in the book are nothing short of extraordinary. 
they're fascinating to read about. If you had chosen more mundane characters, it wouldn't be an interesting book to begin with. So it makes sense to choose the most interesting characters you can. Sure. And you're right in that I did not choose kind of everyday Russians, right? I chose people who were high enough in their kind of individual professional realms. They had achieved enough to really butt up against this question of compromise. Something was really on the line for them. They had risen high enough where they encountered this question of compromise and had to decide did they want to go further? You know, were they going to decline certain opportunities? The, the question really in the sharp way revealed itself. And you do have to kind of reach a certain station in society for that question to reveal itself fully, right? So you, my characters almost by definition had to be people who were in some way, as you put it, kind of remarkable or at least successful in their own fields for the question of compromise to fully reveal itself. Do you believe, though, that they are representative in different ways of just the common everyday Russians at the same time? Absolutely. The dilemmas of compromise they face are recognizable. And as I've said, universal, not just to Russia, but really to all of us who experience similar kind of conundrums and dilemmas. So this notion of where are you willing to bend? How can you use the state and its resources to pursue or facilitate your own goals and interests? As we've talked about, those goals may be really virtuous ones. And this is not about people looking to line their pockets in some corrupt way by making a deal with the state. No, these are people who want to achieve something often, right? There are characters in my book who also simply want personal profit and benefit, but there are also plenty who are trying to achieve something noble, I think. But the only road or the only path toward doing so is some sort of cooperation uh, with the state. And I think that fundamental dilemma or that fundamental kind of arrangement is something that comes up over and over again in Russian life. Let's paint a picture of that. We've been talking about how the role of the state interferes with different parts of society. I think the least intuitive example would be how the state is involved in the theater and the arts. You told a brilliant story about one person, a character from that environment. How did that person find that they were interacting with the state to be able to accomplish their vision and their dreams? Right. So you're talking about the theater and film director, Kirill Serebnikov, who's quite a renowned, famous, not just in Russia, but increasingly a broad director, uh, someone known for his really extravagant avant-garde genre bending productions. And for a while in the early 2000s, when the Russian state was interested in exploring or at least being seen to be proximate to experimental avant-garde art forms, it was profitable or interesting for the state to be seen to be somehow cooperating with or collaborating with Serebnikov. And so it offered him an extraordinary amount of resources. And Serebnikov, for his part, of course, found the offer very attractive. Here are these opportunities to stage experimental theater festivals, to put on works that are really boundary pushing and avant-garde. What's not to like? He even directed the theatrical staging of a kind of surrealist dystopian novel written by one of Putin's top advisors. I mean, that shows how close, in some sense, Serebnikov got to the Putin state, that at least this particular advisor, Vladislav Serkov, was someone who was leading this effort to flirt with avant-garde experimental art, while, of course, very much remaining at its core a sort of top-down authoritarian system. Uh, So Serebnikov benefited from that arrangement for a while. He was named the head of a state theater in Moscow, where he went on to direct and stage really remarkable productions, some many of which I've seen. But at a certain point, the mood of the state changed. This 
moment when the state thought there was something interesting or worthwhile or profitable for it to be seen to be catering to or in some way promoting or sponsoring experimental avant-garde art, that switched. And a conservative revanche followed in which the state pursued an absolute opposite course. You had the state talking about traditional values, passing laws to ban so-called homosexual propaganda. I mean, all manner of really retrograde ideas and regulations and laws designed to create the absolute opposite tendency to position Russia and Russian society as a kind of conservative bastion in opposition to the hedonistic West. And at that moment, Seremnikov found himself immediately and dramatically out of favor. And when he did, it wasn't long before the state came hunting for the flimsiest pretext by which they could bring him down. They found some alleged financial irregularities in his theater and used the pretext of these would-be financial irregularities to charge him with fraud that, that threatened to send him to jail for many years. But what's important in understanding the predicament in which Sharebnikov found himself is that there wasn't really other money available, especially when we talk about theater and dramatic arts. Something like three quarters of the theaters in Russia are state-run theaters. So if you want to put on productions at a theater, the state is kind of the only game in town. The same thing goes for film. To a similar extent, if you want to put on a big budget production, have ambitions of filming something ambitious, well, then state financing is kind of the way you have to go. And as one prominent arts critic in Moscow told me, you know, it wasn't that Serebnikov had the choice of making a film with or without state money. The choice was, did he want to make a film or not? And if he did, that meant cooperating with the state. So you said that they arrested him for the flimsiest of reasons. But I got the impression from your account in the book that he had broken the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. That the government almost expected you to be able to manage the accounts the way that he did. But by doing so, they effectively made him complicit in breaking the law so that the moment that they wanted to tighten the noose around him, be able to constrain what he was doing, that they could prosecute him for breaking those financial irregularities. It's kind of a devil's bargain where you either can put on your productions and break the law or just not put them on at all. Am I reading that right? I think you're right in that the state, especially the so-called Siloviki, let's say people from the security services or you know institutions like the FSB, the Interior Ministry, the police, they certainly are most comfortable in an environment where everyone is a little bit guilty, everyone's a little bit vulnerable. And then it just becomes a question of political will, right? Then it's, well, who do we need to go after, not for legal reasons, but for essentially, let's say, to use shorthand, political reasons? Who's not in favor? You know, Who's an enemy? Who do we need to teach a lesson? Who do we need to make an example of? Well, since everyone is constantly always a little bit vulnerable, well, then it's easy. We can just pick and choose as we please, who to go after and who to make an example of. So I think the fact that the Russian law is written in such a way where in many cases, people have no choice but to find these workarounds, that really presents a kind of advantageous environment in which the security services can kind of pick and choose at will who to target. And the court system plays into this game too, because in the final chapter of your book, they release him, at least they let him go home. He becomes a free man. And it's done almost without any explanation. They just all of a sudden make a 180 degree turn and decide that they're going to go a different direction. Yeah. Live by the sword, die by the sword, right? The, the system kind of taketh away and giveth without certainly the need to explain itself, as you said. And Seremnikov's many ups and downs 
certainly took place according to a formula that was opaque to us, and I think opaque to Seremnikov himself, right? The, the whims and caprices of certain individuals on the inside of the system fluctuated and changed, and so did his fate. And again, because we're talking here about not uh, adherence to the letter of the law or violation of it, but rather the kind of political calculations of officials within the system, he went through exactly this kind of yo-yo experience that you're talking about. It reminds me a lot of the zookeeper that you talk about, Oleg Zubkov as well. Sure. He was someone who was in Crimea for many years, something like 20 years before Russian annexation in 2014. An ethnic Russian came from Russia proper, but settled in Crimea and lived there for many years and thought of himself not just as Russian, but thought of himself in favor of Crimea returning to Russia in some way or, or having kind of Russian influence over Crimea increase. He thought of himself as a kind of Russian patriot in that definition, in that context. But when Russia actually did annex Crimea, something that Zubkov supported. He was a rah-rah out there with his lions from the safari park, you know, egging on annexation and warning, you know, anyone uh, from Ukraine who dared, you know, try and come to Crimea to block that process or in some way undermine Russia's annexation program. He was out in front supporting it, but he quickly realized that the Russia he actually joined was very different than the Russia of his imagination. And it wasn't long before he faced all manner of inspections, raids, criminal cases that the new Russian installed authorities in Crimea really had it out for him. Unclear whether it was kind of personal dislike, disfavor, commercial interests. Someone wanted to get the park out from under him, you know, buy it on the cheap or squeeze Zubkov out of this lucrative safari park, whatever the case may be. Zubkov found himself suddenly at the uh, repressive end of this legalistic apparatus and was in court for one absurd matter after another. And, And his lions and monkeys were confiscated, and he was always trying to get them back. And he very quickly came to regret his enthusiastic support for annexation, but also said to me that you can't talk about history in the subjective case. You can't say, you know, what I would have done if I had known. You know, he says, I was a supporter. I wanted this. And so I guess I have to deal with the outcome. But it was certainly an outcome that he was not counting for and and was really opposite to his expectations. Is that a normal experience for business owners in Russia to be dealing with the court system so frequently? Or was he really an exceptional case? He was exceptional in the fact that we were talking about the forced confiscation of lions who were then kept you know, in the basement of the veterinary service in the capital of Simferopol, you know, presumably like biting through the electrical wires in the basement things. I mean, there's lots about Zubkov's story that is atypically colorful just because of the nature of the business he runs. Not everyone is has monkeys and tigers and lions and camels, and giraffes. But the broader point stands. I think that the degree of unwelcome interaction with the regulatory and criminal justice system is absolutely typical, not universal, but I think you know, many, many Russian business owners know the experience of having to deal with inspections that find all sorts of violations that are phantom or technical or impossible to avoid, but, you know, create great headache and, and also great fines for the business owners. It's entirely common for a rival business owner to use either the police force or the judicial system to squeeze out a rival through the manufacturing of essentially corrupt criminal cases. That's also, alas, very common. So I think most Russian business owners know a thing or two about what it's like to face the kind of blunt end of the Russian regulatory and criminal justice system. So you tell a lot of different stories. 
there is no single description of what the character is. They fit many different profiles. But at the same time, most of them have found a way to navigate through the Russian state and oftentimes even be able to extract advantages from it. Do you find that many of these characters support the Russian state or are they simply indifferent to it? It depends. It depends on the characters, right? They have different levels of support and enthusiasm for the Putin system. Some, like Konstantin Ernst, the head of Channel One, at least outwardly professes himself to be a real Putin supporter, believes in the Putin mission, as it were, to the extent Ernst for himself sees such a thing. And there are others who are much more indifferent and are engaged in a pretty conscious kind of pact, at least as they see it, that's about just achieving some functional good that's in a kind of arrangement of convenience and nothing more. There's also a gray line that's hard to delineate between this kind of tolerance and support. You know, after 20 plus years of Putin in power, you know, at what point does tolerating the system become supporting its continuation? At what point does going along with it, finding a place for yourself in that system effectively help perpetuate it? Those are dilemmas that I don't know the answer to myself. On the one hand, it's entirely understandable on the scale of a human life. You have but so many years to try and achieve something and make something of yourself and of your life. And if you have some skills and talents and ambitions, the window can look relatively short to capitalize on that. And so if you're not going to overthrow the Putin system in revolution, doesn't it make sense to try and find a niche for yourself within that system so you can achieve what's important for you and your one kind of shot at it? I think that's a totally understandable response. And, and maybe would be my response, right? I certainly don't hold myself in judgment and think, ah, I would stand off to the side like some kind of martyr or almost masochistic Sakharov type figure who is willing to risk comfort and success and a place in society to be kind of morally on the right. I'm not sure I would choose uh, that for myself. You know, I'd like to think so, but, but having not faced it, thankfully, it's impossible to say. But at the same time, while completely understanding that impulse to try and find your niche, your path, maybe in aggregate, it's choices like that that are why the Putin system still exists 21 years later after Putin first took the presidency. And do people bear a moral responsibility for that? Maybe. But the fact that that dilemma is, at least as I see it, ultimately unanswerable is what made it so compelling and interesting for me. That's why I think it served as this really fruitful narrative tool for, for telling the story of modern Russia. Yeah. Again, the characters in the book obviously have different approaches to things. You have some people like Dr. Lisa who are more indifferent to the state. You have others, though, like Konstantin Ernst, who's probably the most brazen of all the characters in the book in terms of their complicity and even their enthusiasm for the Putin state. And what I found was interesting was about his cynicism, about how brazen he was, was in many ways due to the dynamics of the media environment within Russia and the differences with the United States. It's an environment that you've got a lot of familiarity with, having worked for both The Economist and having worked for The New Yorker. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between the media environment in Russia and the United States? Sure. The difference is pretty drastic, but also in a way simple in that at least we're talking about television, where Konstantin Ernst works as the head of Channel One, the television's channel with the largest national reach. All federal television, all television with a considerable audience in Russia is state-owned or at least state-influenced, effectively state-run. And so the state has a monopoly on information disseminated 
via television airwaves, which with decreasing frequency, right? This is a story that's changing in Russia, just like everywhere. But historically, the preponderance of Russians relied on television for their news and information content and just awareness of the world. That, of course, is dropping rapidly with the continued and expanding reach of the internet, including to parts of quite far off uh, Russia, places where there hadn't been high-speed internet until recently. So television's monopoly hold on information is changing fast. And so this may be a really different story even in five years. But nonetheless, historically, that's the place where Russians went to for their understanding of the world. And the Russian state had a monopoly since the rise of Putin and his taking control over state airwaves on the dissemination of that information. And that just makes the situation fundamentally different than the United States, right? You can talk about corporate ownership of media. You can talk about the influence of particular corporate owners and interests of corporate owners. But still, even if corporate ownership of media in America has certain kind of negative side effects, it's still not a a monopoly. There's at least a kind of diversity of ownership and you have clashing interests. I'm not sure that either Fox News or MSNBC is all that healthy for American democracy. I I don't want to sort of defend either. That's a maybe dichotomy we should try and get away from for the health of our democracy. But nonetheless, there is a real clashing of ideologies, a clashing of commercial and corporate interests, a clashing of content, of viewership. And, And that's just to take the most extreme example. That's not at all talk about, you know, smaller publications like The New Yorker or even ones with quite large reach and influence like The New York Times. There's just a cacophony of ownership structures, of voices, of interests, of ideologies, and none of them answer to the state. That's the most important thing. There is no publication in America where someone in the White House, whether it's Trump or Biden, could pick up the phone and say, air this or don't air that. And that right there is is the huge difference between Russian media and American media, because Ernst, along with other heads of major television networks, goes to the Kremlin for weekly planning meetings where the heads of the major networks talk through the issues of the day with Kremlin spin doctors, essentially, propagandists, and come uh, to a common understanding about how certain topics are going to be covered, what's not going to be covered. And um, the information content in this way is very much controlled, or at least managed with the input of the Kremlin. And, And that doesn't happen in the United States, thankfully. So we've talked a lot about how the media environment serves the state, how a lot of different institutions serve the state. How is Russia today different than it was during the Soviet Union? I think the key difference is this nominal kind of diversity, which in some cases is more than nominal, which is kind of actual diversity of ownership structures, of ideologies, of interests. You have this really clashing at times, kind of contradictory soup that can somehow all fit inside the Putin system and under the ideology of the Putin system. You know, the Putin system at least purports to be a kind of big tent where you can have Russian Orthodox priests and neo-Stalinists all part of that same system. You can have arch conservatives and avant-garde experimental directors like Serebnikov who can all find a way, not just to coexist with the system, but to even gain something advantageous for themselves from that system. I think that space is shrinking. Someone like Serebnikov represents an interesting case study because less and less does the system have room, have the flexibility to kind of find a niche, to find a space for someone like Serebnikov to know how to accommodate him or her and to tolerate expressions, whether they're creative or political ones, that sort of cut against the 
mood and political currents of the day. I think the state is becoming much more inflexible in that regard and demanding much more rote loyalty. But nonetheless, there's just a whole lot going on, to put it perhaps overly simply, in that although the role of the state and the shadow of the state is vast, there's all sorts of institutions and interests and sources of funding sloshing around within that system. And the state no longer demands ideological adherence. There is no uh, state ideology, really. You don't have to pay lip service to this absurd doctrine of Marxist-Leninism that by the 70s and 80s, most people had stopped believing in and could see with their own eyes the hollowness of this doctrine, at least as it came to the Soviet economy. But nonetheless, since the state was committed to that ideology, it required people to pay lip service to it. You still had to study Marxist-Leninism in university in the 80s. You know, you still had to cite Leninist principles in your dissertation in the 80s, even though everyone from the students to the professors themselves knew that this was a hollow ideology, you still had to pay lip service to it. And, and that's not the case now because there is no real Putin ideology. It's a totally tactical, ad hoc, cynical ideology in which just whatever works, whatever's profitable, whatever gives you advantage goes. And so in a way, that creates a great deal of flexibility for the kinds of compromises I describe in my book. So the way that you're describing that there's room for lots of different types of personalities now, lots of different perspectives, reminds me of the character that you talk about in the book, Hedda Saratova. And we began our conversation talking about Dr. Lisa. And I found myself very sympathetic to Dr. Lisa as you told her story. Hedda Saratova is also a human rights activist. And yet I did not feel the same sort of sympathy towards her that I felt towards Dr. Lisa. Can you talk a little bit about how she's such an unusual human rights activist? Sure. And in fact, I should say, Hedda tragically died of COVID-related complications after a long illness earlier this year. I was quite shocked to hear the news. So unfortunately, Hedda has, has passed away some months ago, which was a great shock and tragedy for all who knew her. But she was indeed a unique human rights activist in the context of Chechnya, where it became increasingly difficult, if not impossible, to be a human rights activist at all of any kind, with the rise of Razam Kadyrov and his quite uncompromisingly brutal rule, there was really no space left for the kind of independent human rights researchers who flocked there in the 90s and early 2000s during the two Chechen wars and did an enormous amount of really brave and heroic work. This was a time when journalists like Anna Politkovskaya were uh, investigating human rights abuses committed both by Russian federal troops and by Chechen forces loyal to Kadyrov. Politkovskaya was, of course, shot dead in 2006, quite tragically showing the danger and the price to be paid for that kind of work. Hedda started out very much in that camp, but over time drifted to essentially become the kind of loyal in-house human rights activist, in quotes, of the Kadyrov system. She still portrayed herself as a human rights activist and still outwardly projected that that was the kind of work she was engaged in. And indeed, in some self-contained specific ways, she was able to do or rather achieve specific good for people who were unjustly trapped in the Chechen criminal justice system, who you know fell under the gaze of the Chechen security forces and had disappeared. And there were some individual cases where she could do some good. But on the whole, she was there to essentially greenwash the violations and atrocities of the Kadyrov regime. She was a human rights activist who most of the time defended the Kadyrov regime against very fair allegations of human rights violations. 
And she did that because as she said to me openly, there was no other way to remain in Chechnya if she wanted to do that kind of work. She could leave Chechnya as many people chose to do, but she didn't want to leave. And I think she also saw an opening for herself and that by becoming this kind of go-to pocket human rights activist for the Chechen regime, she could also gain a really attractive and profitable station for herself in life. So I think the motives were, were complicated. She did want to stay in Chechnya for reasons that are understandable to anyone, right? The desire not to flee your home and to emigrate to foreign shores and start over again. She wanted to stay in Chechnya, a place she was very much attached to, a place with a very strong cultural identity. She wanted to continue to do, as she understood it, human rights work, which was impossible to do if she was going to remain independent. And she saw that by becoming this go-to figure, she could also achieve something for herself. And there, there was some self-interest in that move, absolutely. And so all of those factors together led her to essentially switch sides, if that's a fair way of putting it, and um, you know, do this, again, in quotes, human rights work for the Kadyrov system. So what I admired about her was that she was able to undoubtedly help actual people. She was able to get people out of prison that otherwise would have been unjustly left there if she hadn't interfered. But at the same time, what bothered me about her was that she almost took a sense of pride, almost a sense of enjoyment over the idea of people having to feel that she had the power to be able to make the difference. There was a story about her coming into a prison with the police officer and her almost beaming with the fact that she was seen alongside the authorities. That goes to this point about self-interest, I think, that I was making that I could have expanded on it and maybe should have, that being at the center of the action, being in demand, being someone who people needed to rely on, that also very much appealed to her. She always wanted to be the one who was seen to be, if not, I don't think this was always the case, but she wanted to project the image of the person who you know, was the decider, the problem solver, the one who had great power and responsibility. So Josh, you've lived in Russia a long time. Even before that, you've got a lot of experience in Russia. You know quite a bit about the country before you even began this book project. What did these stories teach you about Russia that you didn't already know? In a word, it's complicated. And in that complication, I found something really interesting and fascinating and, and revealing in that Russia is not a country which is defined by an exaggerated dichotomy between the sort of evil, corrupt, venal rulers, Putin and his ilk, who keep an otherwise dissatisfied population in a kind of cage welded shut by propaganda and repression. That, in other words, the Stalin-Sakharov dichotomy, while compelling, while makes for kind of a good read, right? These sort of black and white moral fables we're attracted to, uh, we've been attracted to forever, but Russia doesn't really fit that model. Of course, there are people who fit both of those paradigms. There are certainly cynical, corrupt, sadistic state officials who absolutely are, are worthy of our, I think, scorn is fair to say, and, and use and abuse their positions for personal gain and to really lord their power over others, just as there are people in society who are deeply honest, deeply committed to a political cause and willing to suffer for it and, and are very selfless in that sense. Someone like Navalny, say, who's now in prison and, and clearly has shown he was willing to suffer personally for his political beliefs. But those two extremes don't capture the truth or at least the lived experience of Russian life as I came to 
know and understand it and to understand what Russia actually feels like to get across this idea of what's it been like to live here for nine years. The stories of people in the middle of these moral gray zones of compromises like the ones I described in the book, I hope, do a pretty good job of illustrating what it's like for most uh, people in Russia who don't fit into one of those two categories. And that's the same, I think, in any society, right? And that's what I found also really important and illustrative about the book, having completed it, that this is a story set in Russia, but in no way is it a story exclusive to Russia. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for this conversation. It really is a brilliant book, Between Two Fires. Thank you so much for writing it. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure. It was a great conversation. Thank you. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.